the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us, rounding out your week with me, President Trump, uh, rounding out uh, his week in part doing something very important perhaps may look on the surface like a pro forma executive order, the 1776 commission that President Trump animated in a speech railing against a historical anti-American ideological gambits like the 1619 project, as well as Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, 1619 project insinuating its way into American schools this year, race identity politics, Marxism dressed up in race identity politics, dressed up in racial justice rap, combined with uh, what Howard Zinn has done in terms of impacting gaslighting children for 40 years, history books, his history book, a staple in so many school districts for four decades. So it's about time somebody joined the fight. I mean, President Trump, it's not hyperbole to suggest he moved to preserve American history Actual um, preserve American history for future generations. So our progeny know of the founding of our country, the actual founding, the basis of it, the founding principles, understand the travails from the colonial period forward, and also warts and all, the complete contextualized history of the United States. And I don't mean contextualized in the way that the left postmodernists uh, use it to rewrite history or to just end history and start it anew, say, November 4th of 2020, which they're attempting to do. President Trump, uh, speaking at the National Archives Museum, our mission is to defend the legacy of America's founding, the virtue of America's heroes, and the nobility of American character. We must clear away the twisted web of lies in our schools and classrooms and teach our children the magnificent truth about our country. And teaching the kids the magnificent truth about our country, teaching kids American exceptionalism, I, I repeat, is not ignoring the ignominious episodes of American history. It is not glossing over slavery or Jim Crow or the internment of the Japanese, any aspect of our history. In addition to taking on the New York Times Pulitzer Foundation-backed 1619 Project and the pseudo-intellects who are just telling fairy tales over there, and that's not me saying it, that's uh, actual historians including many historians on the left who've challenged Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project's rewriting of America's history. And also the notion that uh, racism is hardwired into our DNA. At the bottom of the hour, or actually, uh, I shouldn't say that, even before the bottom of the hour, the next segment after the break, we're going to hear from Shelby Steele, the great Shelby Steele. His uh, new movie, What Killed Michael Brown, we're going to talk about this documentary. And Shelby Steele makes this great point in the trailer, which I'll play. America's original sin is not slavery. It is simply using race, use it, the use of race as a means to power. 
talk about the original sin of slavery. It's the use of race as the means to power. It was wrong when we did it and enslaving black Americans, of course, discriminating against them under the color of law with Jim Crow. And it's wrong what uh, identitarians are trying to do to use race as the source of power today. It's not equating the two, obviously, in terms of the barbarism or inhumanity. Not yet, but it's the same pernicious philosophy is the point of Shelby Steele, who knows a little bit something about uh, what he speaks growing up in segregated Chicago. In addition to uh, tackling the charlatans, President Trump also, uh, and Betsy DeVos, his secretary of education, lifted up those who are presenting a edifying alternative. And uh, this speaks to uh, our good friend of the show, Bob Woodson, over at the Woodson Center, but also the founder of 1776 Unites. Uh, Bob, uh, now I was a volunteer in the infancy of this project at the beginning of the year. It's come a long way in a short period of time, and it's uh, picking up steam, which is great. needs to. Uh, there's no time <laughs> with 1619 Project compounding what uh, Howard Zinn has uh, inflicted upon uh, generations of school kids. There is no time like the president. Uh, move with uh, all due speed, and that's what they're doing. Bob Woodson put together this great coalition of black academics as well as activists from a lot of different uh, fields, including uh, clergy. I mean, real doers in addition to great thinkers and writers and researchers. And uh, one of them is Ian Rowe. We've had on the program before uh, out New York way. I'm sure you know of Ian Rowe. He's a CEO, a president and CEO of successful charter schools in the Bronx. And uh, they just rolled out uh, the day before President Trump made his remarks, their first curriculum offering, compare and contrast. The uh, lessons available for free with registration include the following. First lesson focuses on the 10 transcendent Woodson principles developed by Bob Woodson over his nearly 40 years of work with grassroots groups, transforming struggling neighborhoods and empowering the residents within them. If you've heard Bob Woodson on the show or my morning show in Chicago, you know that he spent the last four decades of his life singularly focus on helping to lift people out of poverty, white, black, brown, at all, lifting people out of poverty, empowering residents, not growing, empowering people, not growing government. And so he memorializes those principles that are, you know, principles that put one on a path to independence. The second lesson of the 1776 United curriculum features the extraordinary life of Biddy Mason, an African-American woman born enslaved, but ultimately died as a multimillionaire who became a prominent philanthropist and landowner. She's in California, if I recall the story of Biddy Mason properly, which I do. She uh, also sued the state of California for her freedom. I think she passed away just before the turn of the century. So she is a, a woman of the 19th century. And uh, I, I believe uh, she owned much of the land on which Hollywood is now situated. Hmm. The third lesson, Elijah McCoy, born to fugitive slaves, but ultimately became a mechanical engineer who secured nearly 60 patents. McCoy was inducted into the U.S. National Inventors Hall of Fame and designed products that were so superior that train engineers demanded oiler systems that were to become known as the real McCoy. And that's where that phrase comes from. Isn't that interesting? if you didn't know it already. This is uh, so Bob Woodson. 
And it's so stark, the difference between 1776 and 1619, between conservative intellects like Woodson, solutionists, as he would call himself, uh, and Steele and Glenn Lowry, who we've had on the show, and Ian Rowe and Jason Hill and John Sibley Butler and so many other people associated with the 1776 Unites Project. Bob Woodson's, one of his signature lines, when whites were at their worst in American history, blacks were at their best. The point of lifting up these stories of black success is to give lie to the victimization narrative of the left. Biddy Mason and Elijah McCoy, in addition to many other stories, I mean, think Frederick Douglass, for example, and uh, myriad stories throughout the course of of, uh, Jim Crow, where despite all of the odds being stacked against black Americans by law, subjugation by law, second classes and status by law, you had these successes in addition to Tulsa Wall Street. So many other examples, the Tuskegee Airmen, the, the Golden 13 that Bob Woodson wrote about in the Wall Street Journal uh, just a few weeks ago. We talked to him about it on this program. And so the point is to say, well, wait a second. You can't do anything in 2020 America because of what was done to your ancestors. And look at all of your ancestors' contemporaries and what they were able to do under systems that I mean, come on, no one can honestly compare to 2020, to, to, to the situation and the opportunity in 2020 America. It's absurd to suggest anything less. So if Elijah McCoy and Biddy Mason and so many others can accomplish what they accomplished under those oppressive systems, then you can't accomplish anything in 2020 America without uh, the white man providing assent, without uh, the white man paying reparations. This is a, a real opportunity to uh, change the course of America away from this uh, dead end of race identity politics. And uh, as uh, Shelby Steele uh, argues, and I suspect will after we come back, race is the source of power. You don't want to establish one racial order to replace a previous racial order. That's not the takeaway from terrible institutions, inhumane laws under Jim Crow, the uh, barbarism of slavery. The point of that is not to say, well, those institutions were okay. It was just the wrong people in charge of them. It was the wrong victim class and the wrong oppressor class. How much sense does that make? It makes none. And yet that's the road that the 1619 Project wants to take this country down. And Bob Woodson and his colleagues in academia and uh, houses of worship, uh, communities around the country doing the hard work of trying to lift people out of poverty through behavioral changes and uh, accessing opportunities. I mean, that's the path that America needs to go on if America is going to continue to be the shining light of the Western world. Come back and uh, join us when Shelby Steele does right after this. I did on my own alone again. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. What Killed Michael Brown? That is the title of a new forthcoming documentary by American academic and author, Shelby Steele, as well as um, his son, Eli Steele, who's a documentarian in his own right, the uh, How Jack Became Black, 
about his kid in the L.A. school system, which is an excellent documentary. If you haven't seen that, check that out, too, because I don't think you can actually understand where we are in 2020 and how we got here without consuming the work of Shelby and Eli Steele, starting with White Guilt, Shelby Steele's book from about 2006, if I'm recalling correctly. But here's the trailer to the uh, Michael Brown documentary, What Killed Michael Brown? A black boy dead in the street, shot by a white policeman. This was an execution. This was an assassination. It was four and a half hours before they finally removed the body. It's like they left the body out there as a warning for us. To this day, there are people who blame Ferguson Market for Michael Brown's death. I want your hands all the way up because this is how he was when he got shot. When he got assassinated. When he got murdered. Everybody gets to go home, we stay black, homie. Ferguson is a microcosm of this country. White cop, black kid, absolutely race. Race played a significant part of the reaction. What happened in Ferguson was more about America, the very same America that would explode in 2020. Where every black was George Floyd, and every cop was Derek Chauvin. You can do better next time by doing the right thing. Since the 60s, whites have lived under the accusation that they are racist. Ferguson really became kind of a destination city for successful African Americans. We were not part of white flight. No. Some people want to be angry at someone. Michael Brown had tried to buy cigarillos the night before with pot. He put his hands in the air, but the officer still approached with his weapon drawn, and he fired several more shots. Some witnesses have also said that they actually saw you stand over him. That would be incorrect. What did you see in that face? Aggression. There was nothing. It was like hollow just looking through me. What demons might have been at work within him and to make the final fateful charge against Officer Wilson? America's original sin is not slavery. It is simply the use of race as a means to power. When truth becomes the lie, and when the lie becomes truth. If Michael Brown valued his life, he wouldn't take the chance of risking it. Was it really racism? That killed Michael Brown. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Shelby Steele, the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and again, the author of many books, including, but starting with, for me, White Guilt, but Dream Deferred, The Content of Our Character, most recently, Shame, all are must-read. Shelby Steele, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, the, the title of the documentary is so interesting. What killed Michael Brown, not who? We know the name of the officer who killed Michael Brown, but the, this documentary explores you know, what brought us to that moment, that confrontation between Michael Brown and that officer. Why is that so important? Well, I think that Michael Brown, was. there were forces in play in, in American life that did result in Michael Brown's death and in the quality of life he had. And that he, in a sense, was a character, a single person who was a product of a kind of liberalism that was born out of the 1960s, sort of a protest era. And many of the public housing, school busing, affirmative action, one program after another coming out of the 60s erected the world that he actually lived in. That world was not uh, helpful to him. He had all the usual problems, the broken family, the bad school system, the terrible neighborhoods, and so forth, many of which 
were the result of or built out of a commitment to this this sort of this liberalism that pervaded in the 60s and came out of the 60s. So in that sense, he's a window into that period of history from the 60s up to the present. Do the facts matter what actually happened the night that he was killed? Do they matter at this point? Does it matter if he had his hands up and said, don't shoot, or he didn't have his hands up and didn't say, don't shoot, and was the aggressor in the uh, confrontation with the officer? Does Does that even matter at this juncture? Well, only in the sense that it exemplifies what we call poetic truth. There is in situations like this, there's the literal truth, what happened, who shot who, and so forth. Then there is what we call a poetic truth, and the poetic truth is the narrative that, that grows up out of events like this through which people pursue power. Blacks pursue power in situations like Michael Brown's killing because it's a vivid sort of metaphor of black victimization at the hands of white racism. Michael Brown is a, in the poetic truth, is a victim of America's long history of racism. And therefore, he, in a sense, justifies liberal politics. He justifies entitlement. He is a source of power on the American left. His tragic death, if it had been a black finger that pulled the trigger that killed Michael Brown, we would never have heard of it. Uh, At the same time, this is... uh, the you know where we have hundreds thousands of black kids killed every weekend in american cities never hear a thing about it but michael brown you do i wonder how you see this being received then when it's pointed out what michael brown did what the evidence suggests he did that night or it's pointed out who jacob blake was or is i should say he wasn't killed is and what he had done why he was there when the police officers came and how he behaved with the police officers or it's pointed out in other instances it's pointed out what george floyd did even what his life was like is that at all helpful is that does that truth undermine the effort to undermine the culture of black victimization or is it important that we provide the, that contextual information and say we have to look at the t- totality of these circumstances and these individuals in those circumstances? My point is that when you have this poetic truth that insists on saying blacks as victims, you always miss the real problems. Mm-hmm. The real problems, black America today, the most profound problem is the breakdown of the family. When 80% of black children are born without a father, well, what, what kind of social programs are going to ever make up for that? And so rather than talk about that extremely difficult problem and challenging problem, we have an argument over, you know, Michael Brown. And, 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 uh, and what does it do in the black community in terms of the perception black Americans have of America when Michael Brown or Jacob Blake or George Floyd are turned into heroes or martyrs or both? Right. It's it's sad because, again, black America tries to build a political identity out of black victimization. And if you say you're not a victim, then they say, well, you're not black. The problem is that we take reality itself and fashion it into a program that, that, that again, we we feel that our only power in America is the fact that we were victimized by America. That's the sword we have over the head of our country. And so we relish situations like Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and and so forth, because they sort of seem to verify that victimized, victim-focused identity that, that blacks now live in. But that identity is killing us. When we come back with Shelby Steele, uh, we'll continue our discussion about his film, What Killed Michael Brown. 
And I uh, want to get uh, more perspective on this uh, statement you made at the opening of the uh, Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla film, No Safe Spaces. More with Shelby Steele right after this. I've got Show.com. We're back with author and filmmaker Shelby Steele talking about his new film, What Killed Michael Brown. And I wanted to uh, tie in a quote you had at the beginning of the Prager Corolla movie, No Safe Spaces that I thought was perhaps the, the most succinct distillation of all that we're seeing unfold that I've heard. And it essentially said, look, uh, America treated black Americans inhumanely, barbarically for a long time, from slavery to Jim Crow. So you got a beef. But how long do you want to prosecute that beef? Do you want to make your life solely consumed with, with prosecuting that beef? And so what do you say when Black Lives Matter or other people say, yeah, Shelby, I do want to make that my life because we need to affect justice for past wrongs. What do you say to that? Mm-hmm. I say that in many ways, the moral progress of white America has been enormous, for one thing. I grew up in segregated Chicago. I know what the things used to be like. We're no longer there. Opportunity for black people is just overwhelming. It's, it's everywhere. As long as we keep focusing on our victimization, we will sink deeper and deeper into nihilism. And you look at many of the inner cities today, that's where they are. There's no meaning in life. Life is a sort of depressing survival situation, and there's no way to, to come to get ahead. I can't emphasize enough the self-destructiveness that people like, when you look at Black Lives Matter, for example, just simply pounding into their own people the idea that they're helpless victims and that they don't have a chance. When the fact of the matter is America is bending over backward to transform itself from the racist country it once was. And opportunity is available everywhere for blacks. People from all over the world come here. Blacks from all over. Africans come to America and have higher incomes on average than white Americans do. Possibility is, is, uh, is infinite. The problem, when you look at Black Lives Matter and groups like that, the real problem is, of course, that they're afraid of freedom. We've won for ourselves. Now intimidates us. This is the one thing black America never had experience of, freedom. We haven't evolved a culture that really grapples with freedom, that uses it, exploits it, takes advantage of it. We don't quite know how to do that. And so we keep going back to this stale, exhausted idea that we're victims. And whites will pay us back for what they did in history. No, they won't. This won't ever happen. We won't ever get any farther than we take ourselves. And that's the message, of course, I think that is a sign, at any rate, that it's beginning to to open up a little bit. People are beginning to hear it just a little bit. We, We have to seize freedom and make the kind of life, the kind of world we want. That's how you do it. Uh, with respect to Ferguson, you know, uh, some uh, half a dozen years removed from uh, the Michael Brown incident, what did you find Ferguson like and, and the people there like in terms of their perspectives on what had transpired then and since as you uh, were making the film? 
Well, it's interesting. A lot of the suburbs of uh, St. Louis remind me of the suburbs of Chicago, where I grew up. And I grew up in Harvey, Illinois, Phoenix, just off the south side. Very decent people, hardworking people in Ferguson, who most of the people arrested in Ferguson were from, from out of state, mm-hmm. from other from California, from New York. And the people there themselves are some of the sweetest people you ever want to you ever want to meet, and still don't quite know what hit them. The town was burned down. It was invaded. The prop, can you imagine uh, owning a home in Ferguson? And the, the, the value of your house, uh, what happened to it was, as a result of this? Well, it still has that stigma, and it's still suffering from that. The crime is, is up. Uh, police, the police force is cut in half. Um, it's, it, these people are bravely struggling on for the most part. Many, of course, have left. So all of uh, Mike, the whole Michael Brown story has, uh, I would say it's obliterated that town, but it's, it's profoundly injured that, that small, everyday, normal, peaceful uh, suburb of a big city like St. Louis. Um, I'm, uh, you, you, you wish, it's, it's painful to, to see people who, feel victimized simply by living in a town, feel uh, that they're being misjudged by the whole world. Hmm. Uh, And they're just everyday American people. The film is What Killed Michael Brown, the filmmakers, Shelby Steele, son Eli Steele, documentarian. uh, How Jack Became Black is another documentary you should check out. That's Eli Steele's documentary. Shelby Steele is the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. WhatKilledMichaelBrown.com is where you get all the info, as Amy said, uh, on the live stream as of October 16th. Check that out. We'll be uh, promoting it when it uh, is up and running. Shelby Steele, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time and best of luck with the film. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, moving from uh, Shelby Steele's forthcoming film, What Killed Michael Brown, that will uh, be uh, streaming as of October 16th, and a discussion of the preservation of life, the fullest expression of life, the sanctity of life from one perspective in terms of um, the uh, street violence in particular, to uh, another discussion of the sanctity of life in a more holistic sense. We're pleased to be joined by Robin Chambers. She's the executive director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family, and she joins us to uh, discuss an event Focus on the Family is having on September 26th at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Worldwide digital premiere of Sea Life 2020. Focus on the family's Sea Life 2020. Robin Chambers, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, tell us what Sea Life 2020 entails and uh, how people can participate. Yeah, um, building off of our success last year on our Alive from New York City, um, that big event in Times Square, we wanted to um, just continue that momentum of 
um, showing life in the womb. And so our original plans were to have something similar to that in five different cities. And then COVID-19 hit. So just wanting to be really cognizant and sensitive of, you know, not doing the large gatherings and, and being careful of folks' health. Um, we decided to go the digital route. So we're doing a big digital premiere on September 26th. It'll be co-hosted by Benjamin Watson, former NFL player, and Janie Mancini from the March for Life. Mm-hmm. And we'll have wonderful speakers and um, music. And the music is going to be a real treat. Um, it's brand new songs that were written specifically for this event. And your listeners and our listeners will get um, the first preview of that Um on September 26th, and so that music will be woven throughout that documentary style film. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to see, uh, since I'm uh, a Chicagoan and a Chicago native, pleased to see Samurai Mike Singletary, Bears Hall of Famer, on the schedule, too. Um, Singletary is a, was a great football player, and he's just a great guy, so it, that's awesome to see him on the, uh, on the roster. Yes, he was a he was just a joy to be with and um, a great voice for life, and we are so thankful that he um, was able to be a part of this. And then some of the other uh, speakers, too, just to give uh, folks a flavor, names that they may know, Alveda King, of course, Abby Johnson, uh, the, uh, the the woman who in, whose story was memorialized in the movie Unplanned, uh, of course, the former Planned Parenthood clinic director turned pro-life heroine. So um, some, some big names here people want to hear from. Yes, and just, um, again, building off of what we did last year, just people who are very passionate um, and about standing up for life and advocating for life, um, you know, from the very beginning. And so it will be a wonderful time to invite family and friends, um, maybe even family and friends who may not think the same way we do, um, but maybe some folks who are on the fence, and this is an opportunity for them to hear from um, people who've been in the abortion business, like you said with Abby Johnson, but then others who've either had an unplanned pregnancy or a past abortion decision um, in just a really great way of sharing hope and healing and redemption. Um, it will be a wonderful time to be a part of something like this. You know, it's always fun to be part of a, a winning team, too, uh, just to continue the uh, Singletary sports analogy. And and um, uh, and and this is an exciting time for the pro-life movement generally because Really, as you see it from the survey data, particularly of younger people, Gen Z and younger, we're winning hearts and minds. We're winning this argument. We're we're winning the battle for uh, a belief in the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death, aren't we? I agree. You know, I hear from so many young women who, you know, talk about how important it is to be educated. And that's one of the things that we've done at Focus on the Family through Ultrasound is we're educating young women about their real choices. You know, when you go to Planned Parenthood, you're given one option. That's not a choice. Um, And young women are really opening their eyes to, you know, being empowered, being educated, and knowing that they have support. And um, they don't look at this as a political issue. It's a heart issue for them um, and an educational issue. And so they really are anxious to hear um, that they can do you know, they can do more than one thing at a time, um, and they're stronger than what we give them credit for. So it's been very, um, for me, it's been very inspiring to hear from some really young people. Lila Rose from Live Action, you know, she's been a great advocate for life since she was 15 years old. 
Um, and so seeing young young women get involved is very, very inspiring to me. And, and how can everybody get involved then? What, what are the ways people can meaningfully participate? They go to focusonthefamily.com. They go to your website to uh, access the event on September 26th at 8 o'clock Eastern time. And, 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 and then how, how can they participate uh, in advance of that and that night? Well, as you said, if they go to focusonthefamily.com backslash um, C-life, it's S-E-E-life, there's a pledge that we're asking everyone to sign, and that pledge is something that we've worked really hard on. Um, There are lots of pro-life leaders that um, got together, and we wrote that pledge together um, just to unify that we are all joining together to end abortion. So that's one of the ways your listeners can begin this journey is to sign that pledge, and then that will take them to a landing page on how they can register for the event. We'd love for them to share their pro-life stories with us on our social media channels, on Facebook and Instagram, and then do a watch party. You know, have this you know, Bible study group or your book club, um, whatever um, group that you want to be a part of. We'd love to see those watch parties and put that on our social uh, media channels as well. Um, and again, just invite your family and friends to this Document Yourself film. It's one hour, doesn't take a lot of their evening, and just join us and help us end abortion. Uh, and, and, and also, as you said, um, just to spread the word, the hashtag love every heartbeat, sign the pledge to hashtag love every heartbeat. Again, just to reiterate, um, I commit to love every heartbeat, the pledge, praying, supporting, encouraging, sharing. And you can figure out what all that means in advance of the sanctity of human life. Sign the pledge, share the commitment, set your calendar, September 26th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Focusonthefamily.com is the website. Focusonthefamily.com slash C-S-E-E dash life. Robin Chambers, thank you so much for joining us. She's the Executive Director of Advocacy of Your Children at Focus on the Family. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll continue to promote this uh, in the days to come before your 926 event, and, and best of luck with it. Thanks so much for your partnership and for getting the word out. We know we couldn't do what we do without folks like you, so thank you so much. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Following up on a story that we had discussed last night, a story that Tucker Carlson had provided us per this interview that he conducted with Chinese virologist and whistleblower Dr. Li Meng Yan, who alleged and is a beginning to publish her research in support of this, that the COVID-19 virus was manufactured in a lab in Wuhan and released intentionally by the CHICOMs who had it manufactured. Well, uh, we talked yesterday about that interview after he did that interview with that Chinese dissident virologist and it posted to social media. Then it wasn't posted to social media. So within a few hours of our interview last night, a video of the segment reached 1.3 million people on Facebook. And why wouldn't it? The coronavirus pandemic has touched the life of every American. And justifiably, people want to know where it came from. But Facebook still doesn't want you to know that. So Facebook suppressed the video, presumably on behalf of the Chinese government. Facebook executives made it harder for users to watch our segment 
Those who found the video had to navigate a warning that the interview, quote, repeats information about COVID-19 that independent fact-checkers say is false. Instagram, which Facebook also owns, did the same thing. Twitter suspended Dr. Yang's account entirely. It did not explain why. Nor did the tech companies explain how they would know more about disease transmission than an MD-PhD virologist like Dr. Liman Yang. Instead, Facebook and Instagram linked to three so-called fact-checks that supposedly proved Yang was lying. But if you clicked on the provided links, you noticed something odd. The fact-checks were all published months ago, many months, in January, February, and March. And they had nothing whatsoever to do with what Dr. Li Min Yang said on our show. They were written before, in fact, anyone knew who she was. One of the fact-checks attacks a completely unrelated claim. The virus was patented and that a vaccine was prepared and ready to go. What does it have to do with the interview that we did last night? No one will tell us that. No, not a thing. And this is what Facebook does. If it's not one of their approved fact-checkers having to green light it, then the new way to censor content they don't politically support, that's against their orthodoxy ideologically, is missing context, missing context label. Another way to offer a pretense of objectivity that's just... In fact, censoring ideas with with which they disagree culturally at Facebook. Good example of this was detailed by John Schweppe, a piece at AmericanMind.org. Beginning of September, he his organization, American Principles Project, launched a four million dollar digital ad campaign through a PAC affiliated with it to focus on Joe Biden's extremism on identity politics, with specific emphasis on gender identity. The being a man or woman is a matter of your feelings of the day. He details his back and forth with Facebook trying to keep uh, his PAC's ads up while Joe Biden's ads and other Biden backed ads that would fail according to the same standards of their approval from their fact checkers or quote unquote missing context stay up uh, without incident. I just restate what I said yesterday. I know it's hard to pay attention to all that's going on equally, but the focus on and the focus on mail in balloting, mail in voting is a real thing. There are legitimate concerns, but the impact on the election of big tech and what big tech is doing, Google and Facebook in particular, is something that shouldn't go unnoticed by party poobahs and the Trump campaign. This is Dan Proffitt. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. FBI Director Christopher Wray whistled before House Homeland Security Committee, a play by House Democrats to help them propagate their Russian collusion narrative, run interference on the work of Senate Homeland Security Committee Chairman Ron Johnson as it pertains to one Hunter Biden and his foreign dealings. Here's what Christopher Ray had to say about the upcoming election and Russian meddling. Yes, I think the intelligence community's consensus is that Russia continues to try to influence our elections primarily through what we would call malign foreign influence, as opposed to what we saw in 2016, where there was also an effort to target election infrastructure, you know, cyber targeting. We have not seen that second part yet, 
this year or this cycle, uh, but we certainly have seen very active, very active uh, efforts by the Russians to influence our election in 2020 through what I would call more the malign foreign influence uh, side of things. Social media, use of, of proxies, uh, state media, online journals, etc. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on in this country, too, in, in a lot of directions. President Trump tweeting out in response to Ray's testimony. But, Chris, you don't see any activity from China, even though it is a far greater threat than Russia, Russia, Russia. They will both, plus others, be able to interfere in our 2020 election with our totally vulnerable, unsolicited, parentheses, counterfeit, question mark, ballot scam. Check it out. Our enemies, foreign and domestic, uh, have a desire to impact the outcome of an American presidential election. This is not new, and it should be treated seriously, but also proportionally, understood proportionally at least, and also understood in context, and that's where Kim Strassel comes in. Chuck Schumer and Senate Democrats in full Pagliacci over a forthcoming report from Homeland Security Chairman Ron Johnson on Hunter Biden and his dealings. Johnson will soon release the findings of his investigation to Biden family's dealings with Ukraine, which is why Democrats are terrified, writes Strassel in the Wall Street Journal. Again, play the cracked and moldy Russia card. The effort to smear and delegitimize Mr. Johnson ramped up in the summer when uh, Democrats and the gang of eight congressional intelligence leaders sent a letter to the FBI expressing concern Congress had become the target of a concerted foreign interference campaign. They think that uh, they claim they're making the claims that Johnson and Grassley, Chuck Grassley as well, receiving information from Ukrainians compromised by the Kremlin. Not true. And both Johnson and Grassley have stated as such. So what you have, as Strassel notably points out, is uh, Schumer and allies in the media spreading Russian disinformation to spread disinformation about the GOP to try to run interference for whatever may come from Johnson's report as it, ter- as it pertains to Hunter Biden's business dealings overseas and potentially any indication that uh, those business dealings were overtly sponsored by his father, the vice president at the time. Uh, over at JustTheNews.com, John Solomon reporting that the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is a Treasury Department agency that polices financial threats such as money laundering, flagged several foreign transactions to Hunter Biden-connected businesses as suspicious during the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration. As those Senate investigations, I just mentioned, move toward their conclusion, the question emerges, Solomon raises, Did U.S. law enforcement or intelligence agencies do anything to determine if the money flowing to VP Joe Biden's son pose any criminal or intelligent threats? Officials at Treasury FBI Office of DNI have declined comment as of now. For more on all this in the context of 11-3, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, best-selling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. Brett, I know that's a lot to unpack, and, you know, it's it's unlikely, I suppose, with everything else going on that's of more important people's lives, that this will maybe get the play it would have gotten if we hadn't had a pandemic, if we hadn't had the violence in America's streets. But it's nonetheless a substantive issue, as is the treatment of it by uh, elected leaders on the Hill. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is substantive. There will be a report. Listen, I think Mitt Romney has spoken out about the timing of it. He doesn't like it, but when are you going to do it? I mean, this is the conclusion of it, and it happens to be 40-plus days to an election. So, listen, it's not going to get covered. I can just tell you that right now. I mean, we're going to cover it, and we're going to do it, but it's not going to get, like, full-blown coverage. It's going to get Republicans... 
release their findings and then it'll be, you know, blip in the road to distract from COVID numbers or something. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right on that. And and so then why why Lindsey Graham is whistling uh, Jim Comey before his committee the end of this month to do another. I mean, is this Lindsey Graham just uh, focused on his reelection and looking yes. tough, tough for his South Carolina voters? Because what, what's that going to accomplish? Nothing. No. I mean, do you know how many times Jim Comey has testified? Too many. If, if you think that he said yes without a subpoena because this is the one where he's going to get cornered, I don't see it. I mean, I, I just think it's a chance for we're going to all take it live and Lindsey Graham's going to run the show and it's going to be uh, Lindsey Graham on TV for a long period of time. Now, I could be wrong. Let's say they have something and they actually get some substance out of it, but I just know that all of the past times that Jim Comey testified, it had been like Chinese food. You know, you eat it yeah. and <laughs> you feel hungry after a while. Yeah, you know, some shows just don't hold up over time. They were fun in the moment, but uh, you go back and watch them again, and it's just like, what was I thinking? Um, this is terrible. So on the, the more pressing issue, especially since there are so many apocalyptic predictions coming from uh, both sides about the November 3rd election, the administration of it, the mail-in piece of it, the counting of the votes piece of it, the war games piece of it that plays out all kinds of uh, dystopian scenarios about the end of the republic sometime between November 3rd and January 20th. From the folks that you talk to that are a little bit more measured on these topics, what are is it that the parties are really thinking and saying, you know, the leadership on the Hill in terms of November 3rd and and how they're game planning it? Well, one, both parties are hoping for a landslide, either one, because that would make it a little easier. You know, if you know definitively that somebody's got 270 electoral votes, it makes it a lot easier. Two, I think that we are in for, if it's not that, if it's a close race, which it looks like it will be, we're in for a few days of not knowing. And that potentially can get, you know, we saw what happened with the recount in Tallahassee, and I was down there. I mean, Mm -hmm. the presidency hanging in the balance and, you know, people holding up chads, uh, hanging chads. I think that take that times 10 battleground states three of which have not done real absentee ballot in big numbers before, I think you're going to run into troubles. And, you know, the the hope for both parties is that it's a clear winner, Uh, but it it might not be. Attorney General Barr suggesting that um, the infringement on liberties attendant to the pandemic is um, the greatest infringement on civil liberties of Americans since slavery, since uh, the Civil War, that's drawing uh, howls from the left. I mean, is this this sort of the same sort of moral panic that you're going to get regardless of what you say or don't say, what you do or don't do, much like uh, Ron Johnson's getting now being accused of being a Russian agent by Chuck Schumer? Yeah, I mean, Barr is now in the, the full-on, you know, Democrats are attacking him for being the president's lawyer, for saying, you know, things. And, and, you know, I've talked to the attorney general. He really doesn't care. And so he's just letting it <laughs> that, rip. That comes across. <laughs> and um, so he's just letting it rip. And, and yeah, you know, he did that, but he, there was a, there was a thing in there. He said, it's not like slavery. It's just the biggest infringement on civil rights since. Yeah, and, right. you know, people just twist words and yeah. they become the headline. Uh, I wanted to get your take on uh, Joe Biden's uh, performance at uh, CNN Town Hall. I mean, it wasn't uh, 
he didn't turn into Winston Churchill, but he wasn't Winston Churchill when he was 30. So I wouldn't expect him to be Winston Churchill now. But uh, but he got through it. OK, not much controversy, really, uh, to, to be had. Um, and, and perhaps not a particularly hard questions. It'll be different dynamic when you're going uh, one on one on a debate stage. But but still, I mean, it speaks to this idea that um, that, that that the Trump campaign maybe should temper there. He's going to collapse on stage uh, as soon as he sees the sights of Trump on September 29th. Quickly, they need to change that gear, because um, if you're a Trump supporter, you are listening to the president at every stop saying that, you know, Joe Biden has lost it. And he's he's not able to perform. And essentially, if Joe Biden shows up to the debate and doesn't drool on himself, um, that is a win and for the Biden campaign. And last night he showed that he can get through it. Now, I agree with you. I, I don't think it was exactly pressing, um, but, you know, town halls can be like that. And, uh, you know, I also wasn't newsworthy uh, right. as far as you know, breaking news, but, um, but he did make it through. And, uh, if that's the bar, he's going to win. Brett Baer, <laughs> Fox news anchor, special report, number one, best-selling author of three days at the brink, FDR's Darren Gamble to win WW2. Brett, thanks for joining us. Thanks a Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Chicago uh, making uh, national news, getting national attention again. And, of course, it's bad news. It's about uh, the violence endemic to the city. USA Today, there's not a comparable year. Homicides are up 52% in Chicago amid COVID-19, with majority involving people of color. The nation's second largest county has recorded more homicides this year than all of 2019, up 52% year over year. The majority of which, 95% were people of color. 95%. The majority of the perpetrators, at least those who have been identified as suspects or taken into custody, of course, are also people of color. That's a... um, Outgrowth of white supremacy, of institutional racism. Is that right? I know that's a rhetorical question, um, but it's just worth revisiting time and again, because uh, what does the left have to say in response to everything? Racism, racism, racism. Right. It's all identity politics all the time. So just the data and the questions that follow Uh, like this in Minnesota. (laughs) This is really something. Uh, Minnesota City Council uh, wondering where the police are. City Council member for uh, representing Ward 6 there in Minneapolis said he's been inundated with complaints from residents that calls for police aren't being answered. The only public safety option they have at the moment is the MPD, Minneapolis Police Department. They rely on MPD and they're saying they're nowhere to be seen. We, you're, a, you're a group of racists that we want to defund and reimagine and uh, now we can't find you. Imagine that. Imagine that. And of course, Minneapolis, like so many of these cities, but particularly Minneapolis, of course, the site of the George Floyd police involved killing, seen a spike in their violent crime rate year over year, too. Uh, So all of this goes to uh, form a part of the backdrop for the November 3rd election. And as we were talking about with Brett Baer, the concern and as Peggy Noonan writes about in The Wall Street Journal, 
you know, get ready for an election crisis. That's sort of the conventional wisdom emanating from the Beltway, sort of conditioning us for lawlessness or just about anything under the sun in terms of leftist planning to secure the presidency November 3rd, one way or the other, legitimately or less than legitimately. And uh, as it pertains to um, this uh, push for uh, full mail-in voting, uh, just another story to add to Patterson, New Jersey, to add to the New York primary over the last couple of months. The New Jersey uh, 7th, July 7th primary. So that's that's uh, more than two months old. Patterson, New Jersey is doing a redo. New Jersey, uh, Patterson, New Jersey is redo because 20% of the mail-in ballots were spoiled. Officials in Sussex County, New Jersey, just discovered 104, uh, uh, 1,666 ballots in a bin that was mislabeled. My bad. Oopsie. The uh, local board of elections uh, consulted with New Jersey Attorney General about what to do. The wayward ballots were tabulated, and the board said the revised count did not change the outcome of any Sussex County primary election in any race for any office. Okay. Well, um, we'll take your word on that. Perhaps that's true. Been that was mislabeled. Then you have questions. If if I was somebody who lost a close race in Sussex County, then I have questions about chain of custody and so on and so forth with with respect to these labels, with respect to these ballots being counted and and so forth. I mean, it's just another example of what we're talking about when we say the mail-in push doesn't guarantee fraud, but it puts a lot more slack in the system to make fraud and other irregularities, incompetence uh, more likely. And that's unhelpful if you want people to have confidence in the administration of an election. And if you want people to see the outcome of that election as legitimate so that we continue to maintain the peaceful transitions of power or the continuation of power as the outcome may dictate. This uh, this court ruling with respect to a mail-in voting that was brought by uh, uh, action brought by Cook County Republican Party. Uh, on the one hand, they lost. They didn't get the adjunctive relief they sought. But on the other hand, they did get uh, uh, a victory on ballot harvesting. Ballot harvesting is not allowed. The individual must request the ballot uh, and, uh, and 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 and, fo- and follow those protocols. So this is no. This is trying to get you to request the ballot because they can't just ballot harvest. They can't just you know, pass out and collect. So this is you have to do it, and they, and and so you get checked out. So there's some you know quality control over the dissemination of mail and uh, ballots. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Farrell. He's the director of research and investigation at Judicial Watch, Judicial Watch, which uh, served as the shadow Department of Justice during the previous presidential administration and uh, now is um, uh, litigating uh, much of these election related issues that we've been discussing. Chris Farrell, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. And so um, you uh, wrote uh, about uh, you wrote a couple of pieces about this psychological conditioning, the war gaming that we've talked about on this show that's been going on to sort of uh, tease out all kinds of uh, uh, dystopian scenarios about the future of the republic pending a close election where there is no agreement on who the victor is. Um, so, so sort of give us your sense of what you think the, the Beltway elites are trying to condition us to anticipate. Well, the great thing is that we don't even need to sort of guess at it. We have a written document. There's an organization called the Transition Integrity Project, TIP, and this Transition Integrity Project features characters like John Podesta, 
who's a lifelong, you know, Clintonista sort of handler of the Clinton political dynasty. Uh, and then probably 60 other political operatives, mostly Democratic, a handful of sort of never Trumper Republicans, Republicans in name only. Um, that way they can call themselves bipartisan, of course, when you have people that, you know, loathe the current administration and their heroes to the left. But these people with TIP generated a 22-page report, and they detail all their plans to disrupt the election. Uh, of course, they're really cute about it, and they they use projection. So they say, oh, these are ways that we can prepare to not have a disruptive election. But then they list all the stuff they're going to do to disrupt the election, multiple lawsuits. But then the most disturbing thing, besides the legal challenges and sort of the administrative challenges, is they then say, well, you know, uh, it's probably going to end up in street violence. So they're very cute in the way that they talk about it. They don't actually explicitly advocate for violence, but they're just a whisper away from saying, yeah, go ahead and get out in the street and, and engage in violence against persons and property. When you read this tip report, I mean, they're, they're very crafty people. Look, they're, they're very smart political operatives, and they're totally lawyered up, right? So they're not going to make the mistake of, of affirmatively calling for violence. They're not that stupid, but they are, they are talking themselves into it, and they are just a whisper away. They say, well, you know, this could result in street violence, and there could be unorthodox reactions to uh, you know, voting results. And, and even if Trump does win, it might be what they use, a term that, that a lot of their supporters use, is a red mirage that, that the, the victory might just be early reporting. Right. And they want to count and count and count and count and count votes until they get the number they want. When we come back with Chris Farrell of Judicial Watch, I want to uh, continue our discussion on the notion of street violence depending on the outcome of the election or the lack of an outcome to the election. More with Chris Farrell right after this. back with uh, Judicial Watch's Chris Farrell talking about uh, election-related violence, the possibility of it. Before the break, we're talking about the uh, violent protesters. And it seems like it's uh, sort of like what Joe Biden said uh, in a speech a couple of weeks ago. If you reelect President Trump, violence in the cities isn't going to stop. You, you either elect me or the violence continues. I mean, it was, you know, it's a veiled uh, extortionary threat. And that's the same thing you have going on here with this war gaming. But one of the interesting things I, I've read um, quite a bit about this now and is how quickly it descends into madness such that John Podesta playing the role of the Biden campaign honcho after a uh, failed attempt to litigate for resolution, he uh, gets the governors, the Democrat governors of Western states, California, Washington, Oregon, to threaten to secede from the union unless certain demands that they have about the future construct of America's political system are met. 
such that they'll accept President Trump as the victor in a scenario where he's clearly the victor. We're still not going to accept him clearly as the victor unless you uh, give us, you know, the elimination of the Electoral College and other such structural changes to our representative republic. And we'll do it under threat of these states seceding from the union. Well, there's obviously a number of people who would be quite pleased to have those three states secede from the union. But, but of course, there's somehow the historical irony of Democrats calling for secession is lost on them, right? Um, You know, uh, Lincoln did not win a single electoral college vote south of the Mason-Dixon line, not one. And and what what did the southern states do? They seceded, and it was led by who? Democrats. And and so now... There's no irony. There's no sense of, gee, uh, you know, history doesn't always repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Is this lost on these people? Uh, are they that clueless that they're advocating? Democrats are advocating for secession based on the presidential election. And so have, it, they, have they learned nothing? Well, and, and, it's, and it seems to me it speaks to what you were saying about uh, the street violence as well. It's just another veil threat. Look, either you're going to have to vote for Joe Biden. Joe Biden either wins or you're we're going to burn down cities or cities will be burned down. We're not going to do it, but it's going to happen. And uh, the disintegration of the republic will soon follow. Right. And the, and the other piece of this, which is actually the second part of an article I did, is the psychological conditioning that they are attempting to do through both manipulation of the news media and social media and then sort of mentally pounding it into people's heads that, look, you know, don't vote. If you do vote, do it by mail. Um, there's all these efforts to suppress uh, essentially Republican or, or let's just say right of center conservative turnout, right? Uh, they are desperate and frantic to do that. And they, they do it with threats of retaliation. They do it with a sense of unease about civil unrest. They do it with this crazy voting scheme that they have where you vote and vote and vote until you finally get the numbers that you want. And look, you have a COVID-compliant country where everyone's kind of, you know, goes recoils and hunkers down in their home uh, based on orders from some, you know, loser mayor who's just trying to manipulate the public. Um, This is really dangerous stuff. And there's a lot of people who just, you know, will shrug and say, you know what, forget it. I'm not even interested in playing. Screw this. Um, and that's the real danger is that people will, will feel disconnected, even more disconnected than they are in crazy pandemic world. Hey, give us your rank order priority of concerns about the legitimacy of the election. I mean, because there's um, there's a lot of moving parts here. There's a, a story out this week. Nearly three hundred fifty thousand dead registrants remain on voter rolls across 41 states, according to an audit conducted by the Public Interest Legal Foundation. That's a. A big improvement over a Pew Research report from 2012 that found two million deceased voters on the rolls, but still 350,000, 350,000 combined with what we saw in terms of the administration of mail-in elections in both New Jersey and New York, combined with um, the veiled threats that we were talking about. Uh, how, how do you see this playing out or sort of what's your threat assessment in terms of uh, the, the, the priorities, where we should have, where we should be focused if we want to uh, maintain the integrity of the elections as best as possible. Well, as, as disturbing as those numbers are that you just cited, it's chicken feed. It's nothing. In Los Angeles County, we had a huge court victory earlier this year where we forced Los Angeles County, Judicial Watch forced Los Angeles County through our litigation to remove 1.5 million 
names, right. false names, mm-hmm. off the voting rolls in Los Angeles County alone. In one county, 1.5 million, the people were either dead or they moved away or they they were felons. Or I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why somebody should be taken off of a voter roll. That's just in one county in one state. And you have people like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, mailing ballots to every single person in the state. He is Chris Farrell, the director of research and investigation at Judicial Watch. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thanks. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, uh, CNN Town Hall with uh, Joe Biden. Last evening, didn't get a lot of detail on the fiscal impacts of Joe Biden's proposals in terms of average American households. Uh, so we're going to have to rely on academics for that. Couldn't rely on Anderson Cooper, surprisingly, for such detail, much less Joe Biden, of course, for a little bit of assistance. We're pleased to be joined again by Casey Mulligan. He's a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, served as chief economist for the uh, White House Council of Economic Advisors from 2018 to 2019. Casey, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I'm really glad to be back. So uh, Joe Biden says his tax plan no new taxes, no tax increases on Americans making less than $400,000. And that's that's really all you need to know, is it? Is it all you need to know? Uh, no. Uh, there's a lot of hidden taxes. And your listeners are familiar with those. Uh, they often go under the label of regulation. So instead of sending you a tax bill, they'll just restrict what businesses can do, what workers can do, and make things cost more and make our wages less. Yeah. So, for example, perhaps like in the area of healthcare, where he is supposed to have a significant advantage uh, because he's significantly more generous to low and middle income families than, say, Republicans and President Trump uh, when it comes to uh, providing uh, quality health insurance at an affordable price. Does that does that check out? No, I mean, what the uh, things that they did with Obamacare and uh, and candidate Biden wants to reinforce that law. But Obamacare prohibited a lot of the cheaper plans. So, for example, you're, you and your wife, you're in your 50s, and you want to buy insurance that doesn't require pregnancy coverage because that's not your phase of life anymore. That was prohibited. President Trump allowed that once again, allowed people to buy plans that fit their family's needs instead of the government mandates. And in the name of strengthening Obamacare, Biden wants to bring those back. Yeah. And one of the other things you point out, too, and I think this is important, you know, this gets into the weeds, but this is where the this is where the real impacts are. You uh, make the point that the uh, Obamacare still includes a a tax on medium size and large employers that don't offer health insurance to most of their workers. It hasn't really been enforced. But if it was, it would cost low income families on average about 700 bucks a year. That's significant. Yes, that's for the low in, low income families. Uh, that that'd be a significant part of their pay for just one of the many things on on his agenda. And and that's something that was essentially uh, not enforced under President Trump, but Joe Biden, per his plans, is committed to such enforcement. Well, Obamacare is such a mess; it might not be possible to enforce it. We'll we'll see uh, what kind of magic he can work on the enforcement. But I suppose that, yeah, I suppose that the fact that it exists as part of Obamacare gives you an indication of what his view on is, uh, you know, the Biden, uh, the Obama-Biden 
now Harris view on that is. Uh, I wanted to get to uh, energy policy as well, since he gave a big uh, a climate change talk this week, Green New Deal. And uh, he's been sort of all over the place on fracking, uh, banning fracking in the primary. Now he's saying we're going to have to let fracking uh, exist for a little while longer to transition away from fracking. But what's the upshot of, of the cost of his proposals in the area of energy policy for the ordinary family? Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Is he banning fracking or is he going to allow a little fracking? The thing that he's very clear on is, number one, he wants uh, to get fossil fuels largely out of electricity generation. So, you know, coal, natural gas, petroleum, we shouldn't be using those or using those as little as possible to generate electricity. So he's going to make it harder to make electricity. Then at the same time, he wants to make all our cars electric. So we're going to have more need for electricity, but fewer places to get it. So the result is going to be dramatically higher, either energy prices or higher taxes to subsidize people so they can afford these new high energy prices. Yeah. So so we're going to scale the California model nationally where uh, you pay high energy prices for energy you don't get. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you're going to need even more because that's how your car runs. Right. Yeah, right. A solar panel on every roof. And so then your the square footage, uh, your house will cost more per square foot, uh, too. Uh, so just in terms of hitting families. And you did a nice thing, too, in your piece in the journal where you just sort of bottom lined it. Uh, you looked at uh, all of the proposed regulations and translated it into its impact per quintile. You know, each of the five quintiles of, 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 uh, of household income distribution. And what do you find starting from the bottom and going up? Yeah, the lowest income group, which would be not just poor, but also lower middle income, the cost to them of having all these new regulations or returning the regulations of the past is about 15% of their income because they spend a fair bit of their income on things like energy, transportation, internet, health insurance. And that's as much as they pay on all their taxes right now. Um, so it, it, from their point of view, might as well be doubling their taxes. Now, that percentage falls as you go up the income distribution, <clears throat> largely because higher-income people spend a lesser fraction of their paycheck on the things that I mentioned, in Internet and energy. Um, but still, on average, it's be 3 or 4% uh, of your income that you're going to be paid for these new regulations on top of whatever taxes you're obligated to pay. And, and the top quintile, 2.2% implicit tax on the <laughs> highest earner, the regulatory costs uh, you calculated. So, I mean, uh, you know, even still, uh, that's that's 7x for the lowest quintile as compared to the the highest quintile. And yet uh, running around talking about how he's just going to make the rich pay a little bit more, which, of course, is uh, sort of the, the left talking point, even because they want you to only look at one tax, the marginal income tax rates, and not look at you know all of those uh, lesser included taxes that add up to a significant uh, increase of the federal government's take from your household income. Yeah, and this has been the dirty secret of regulation since the beginning of regulation, that the regulators uh, can indulge their preferences, which they tend to be higher income people. So they'll ask you to do things like buy an electric car that they don't mind doing themselves, but you know, you live in a rural area, you have to pull pull heavy things. Your electric car doesn't do it for you, but too bad. That's just the pattern, and it makes it very d- different from a tax in that way, where the taxes are more naturally, we more naturally ask the higher income people to pay, not so in regulation. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, work like yours that helps people, helps <laughs> focus people to understand um, all of the 
ways the government is trying to get into your pocket, not just the marginal income tax rate that is the focus. If the politician wants you to just focus here, that means you should be focusing somewhere else because there's something else at a foot there, as is the case with Biden's economic plans. He is Casey Mulligan, professor of economics at the University of Chicago, served as the chief economist of the White House Council of Economic Advisors from 2018 to 2019. Professor Mulligan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, if you get to check out my book called You're Hired, I have a lot of stories about the president and regulation that are really fun. Uh, even though regulation can seem boring, the president makes it fun. So, Okay. The book is You're Hired. All right. Uh, Professor Mulligan, thanks so much for joining us. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, per our discussions with uh, Brett Baer and uh, Casey Mulligan, uh, just a, a, an example of, I think, how Joe Biden will will perform in the September 29th debate and thus the uh, approach in terms of expectation management that should be taken between now and then, as well as uh, the game planning that should be done in advance of that September 29th debate so that uh, Trump is fully prepared for the approach that Joe Biden, I think, will take. And I guess Chris Christie, if he's playing the role of Joe Biden in debate prep, uh, he should be watching this, too. Perfect example of somebody who is um, not exactly Churchillian, as I said with Brett Baer. He's not going to dazzle you. He may not even make sense. But he'll bumble through a 90-second answer on a particular topic and get out. This from the CNN town hall last night. A farmer from Pennsylvania who's a Trump supporter asking him a particular question about uh, how Obama-era ag regs hurt her ability to make a living and what he was going to do about it, those regs, as president. And listen to the exchange. Good evening. Um, overregulation puts an extreme burden on small and family-owned farms and is a contributing factor to many farms going out of business. Policies during the Obama administration, such as the rules under the Waters of the U.S. Act, threaten to increase that regulation, as does policies proposed through the Green New Deal, which your climate plan embraces. No, it doesn't embrace whole new... Excuse me, uh, if I could finish. I'm sorry. Thank you. I apologize. Um, How do you plan to decrease the regulatory burden for farmers and businesses as a whole? Two ways. Number one, we should provide for your ability to make a lot more money as farmers by dealing with you being able to put land in land banks and you get paid to do that, to provide for more open space and provide for the ability of you to be able to be in a position that we are going to pay you for planting certain crops that in fact absorb carbon from the air. That's part of what the plan relates to in terms of agriculture and, and and the environment. Yeah, Julie looked about as befuddled with that answer as you probably do listening to it right now. It's a non-answer. It's nonsensical. It's easily pierced, but you have to be prepared to pierce it. It's not going to be forgetting Julie's name necessarily. It's not going to be stumbling around. He's going to have some sort of disjointed collection of phrases that he remembers from 
debate prep, and he'll throw them together in some amalgam that sounds semi-coherent but makes absolutely no sense and just try to muddle his way through a couple of hours that way. So it's not going to be Joe Biden. You can't anticipate it's going to be Joe Biden who thinks he's running for U.S. Senator in South Carolina. That Joe Biden, those kind of babbling answers. That's what you have to be prepared for, to be surgical and succinct and cut right through it to make sure that uh, one man's prattling on, which Trump is prone to do, uh, isn't uh, muddled by the other guys prattling on. And it just becomes a a big nothing burger, the event. I I think that's a real case study right there, that exchange and Joe Biden's answer, something that should be looked at by the Trump campaign. So I hope it is. This is Dan Brown. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com, on social media, at Dan Proft Show. As we uh, spoke with Brett Baer earlier in the program, Attorney General Barr is uh, not one to mince words, and no matter how much heat he gets from the left, he's not going to start anytime soon. That's clear. And he speaks very succinctly about things that are true. He's got the drop on Black Lives Matter. They're not interested in black lives. They're interested in they're interested in props. A small number of blacks who were killed by police during conflict with police, usually less than a dozen a year who they can use as props to achieve a much broader political agenda. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, mascot politics I've spoken about for years. Uh, Props is another way to put it. Because if they were interested in in black lives, I mean, this has become a prosaic point, but apparently it's one that needs repeating. My hometown of Chicago, making national news again for all the wrong reasons, USA Today, noting that nation's second largest county, that would be Cook, has recorded more homicides this year than all of 2019. Murders in Chicago are up 52% year over year. And the majority, 95% were people of color, according to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. Of course they were. As well as was the case that for those where there's a suspect or someone arrested and charged with a homicide, it is uh, overwhelmingly a person of color as well. Why no interest there? Because of mascot politics, of props. There is nothing to be gained if the perpetrator is black, there's only something to be gained if it's a white police officer or a police officer generally, but particularly a white police officer. And so what's the result of this? Well, these politicians, they're really something, aren't they? This story out of Minnesota, Minneapolis. Jamal Osman is a newly elected member of the city council there. He uh, noted that um, at a recent uh, council meeting, two-hour meeting, that residents are asking, where are the police? He said he's being inundated with complaints from residents that calls from police aren't being answered. This is the only public safety option they have at the moment, MPD. They rely on MPD, and they're saying they are nowhere to be seen. Huh. This is the same city council, Jacob Fry, who's characterized the police as racist, who is openly and notoriously calling for the defunding of police, wants to reimagine the police. Now they're wondering why the police aren't responding with alacrity to their various calls. Professor Paul Castle... He's a professor at the University of Utah College of Law. 
picks up on the Ferguson effect, as Heather McDonald termed it after the Michael Brown shooting there, and uh, says there's a Minneapolis effect playing out in America today. The dramatic spike in shootings and homicides across many cities, not just Chicago. His research quantifies the size of the summer's Minneapolis effect. He estimates that reduced proactive policing resulted in about 710 more homicides and 2,800 more shootings in June and July alone. The victims, disproportionately black and Hispanic, often living in disadvantaged and low-income neighborhoods. And what does the left have to say to this? Well, the Harris-Biden ticket wants you to donate to the Minnesota Freedom Fund that's providing bail to criminals committing crimes in Minneapolis. And I suppose the same would go for other cities. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of The Case for Trump. VDH, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So um, the Minneapolis effect, uh, as uh, that uh, Professor Castle, University of Utah Law, terms it, you, you can't be surprised to uh, note those numbers, can you? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we call the Chicago, as you said, the Chicago effect, the Minneapolis effect. I think what we're seeing is a war with human nature. And we all knew that when police went in to the more crime-ridden areas of inner city, it was always a tough challenge because it was sort of a lose-lose situation. If they use excessive force or a judgment call, then they would either be sued or be relieved or be doxxed and persona non grata. If they didn't go in, they were to be considered, you know, racist or not reacting to community needs. And if they were a little bit hesitant, they could get killed. And that was always a touchy situation given the high crime ratios in those communities. And so when this all started and they, they were told, you know, you're all culpable, you're collectively guilty for for the few wrongdoings and maybe a three or four or five officers and we're going to define you their natural reaction was not to say anything but just to say you know what we don't have to do this we had mass retirements we had resignations we had transfers and most of all we had people that just went into slow motion modalities they just said you know okay spousal abuse in south side chicago maybe maybe not we're going to go in there because if we go in there it's lose 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 and now all the people who demanded that they be defunded and they be pulled back without or without protection. You can see it in these symptomologies that we have record gun sales. I talked to my son the other day in California, there's a six month waiting list for any type of new gun. And uh, he was trying just to buy a rifle, not, not necessarily a gun for protection. And they're, they're all sold out. So people make the necessary adjustments, no matter what the media or whether, no matter what the, the theoretical explanations are. And that's, I think, that's true about everything that we're seeing in the progressive project. And I'm looking out the window and I can hardly see in California and everybody knows just as you don't pull back the police from the inner city and just as you don't gratuitously destroy them, their reputations and the range of action, you don't let 65 million dead trees sit in a forest for five years without having green napalm explode at some occasion. This is a larger question that the progressive agenda and project is really at, at war with human nature and what average people know through the millennia of civilization is common sense and you do this and you don't do that and yet they don't seem to be guided by by simple laws of cause and effect or human nature by the way uh, just in terms of the fire if in, if you're one of those families affected don't eat the apples that jay inslee is uh, sending over to uh, victims of the california fire fires i don't know if you saw this story but uh, jay inslee uh, sent apples that uh, were found to have been infested with apple maggot larvae so uh, not much help from Washington State is, is en route. Uh, I hate to break it to you. So be on the lookout for the forbidden fruit from Jay Inslee uh, there in, uh, in California. 
Um, I wanted to uh, also um, get your reaction, though, to what uh, the left is proposing, because they can't just say defund the police. They got to come up with an alternative. And the, the general alternative you're seeing proposed in big cities, including Chicago, 24 hour crisis hotline that would divert calls about suicide, homelessness, <clears throat> substance use away from police and towards a team of social workers, nurses, emergency medical techs, and so forth. You know, that sounds all well and good. I'm sure the police would be supportive of it. You know, I'm I'm sure they don't relish going on those calls for exactly the reasons that you were just describing about domestic abuse calls, which uh, I think second to traffic stops are the the most dangerous situations for police officers. But take the Lancaster, Pennsylvania case, for example. Okay, so you divert that call because it's a, a substance abuse, maybe mental health issue, so we'll just send a social worker there. And then that guy comes charging out of his uh, house with a knife at the social worker. How does that end? Yeah, I mean, when we want to cut through the rhetoric and we just want to look at behaviors to find out what the truth is, when we dig a little deeply and we see members of the Seattle City Council or Mayor Wheeler in Portland or Lori Lightfoot in Chicago or London Breed in San Francisco, the common denominator is they're terrified when people show up at their own home. So they have plenty of police protection. Same thing with Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles. So it suggests to us, just as if you drive down Pacific Coast Highway along the Malibu, it's multi-million dollars safe. They have huge walls. These are the people who think walls don't work. So what they say and what they actually do is, is, is quite different. Everybody knows you can't defund the police. I've been talking to some of uh, a police officer I know really well. I know him pretty well. And if he said, and he's not, he's, a so-called minority officer, what they do not want is the inner city to say, we only want people of color to come into our community as police because the white policemen then will be relegated to other neighborhoods that are far less dangerous and far less crime-ridden. Whether we, we, that's not a racist statement, it's an empirical declaration of fact. Right. So this minority officer was telling me what he's scared to death of is that now there's pressure from his own community to say, you know what, you're going to have to come in here. But he says one of the things he likes is occasionally rotating out to areas with a very little crime. It relaxes him. It gives him a, a pause from what is pretty dangerous in parts of West Fresno or where I live out in the rural San Joaquin Valley of California. And that's another irony that we don't even talk about. And a lot of people in the police department onto the web, uh, radar are saying, you know what, if you want each minority group to only uh, police that particular constituent, that's fine with us. No, and it, and it also just runs counter to our values. The idea is it's, it's, like, the, it's like the idea, right, a white police officer can't police a black neighborhood like a white man can't represent black people or black people can't represent white people in terms of public officials. I mean, that's nonsense. We reject that mm-hmm. in every other walk of life except the policing for some reason. It's insane. But it's, it's the ultimate logic of a society that allows racially segregated dorms on campuses or racially segregated safe spaces where I work and where we have this constant racial separation rhetoric. And I don't think people realize it's the same logic as defunding the police. It's if they really want that, these the small minority of activists, they want these racially segregated zones or uh, areas of our society. I don't that are de facto apartheid. They're, they don't have any idea what they're asking for. To hold it there for just a moment, we come back with Victor Davis Hanson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of The Case for Trump. I want to turn our attention to the November 3rd election and get his handle on where he sees the race some, uh, well, less than 50 days out. More with Victor Davis Hanson right after. You can't go wrong Thinking Nothing's wrong 
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with the great American historian, Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of The Case for Trump. And BDH, before we turn to the uh, November election, just one more thing that, that I think is one of the saddest and most depressing commentaries on where big cities are at. Chicago, which is, as the Wall Street Journal termed it, Murder City USA under Lori Lightfoot, who is all identitarian politics all the time. There was a press conference yesterday in which school children were demonstrating how they would react when gunfire does erupt, not if, when gunfire does erupt, how they would use bulletproof backpacks to shield themselves as they kneel down to, to find cover during gunfire as they come to and from school. I mean, if that is not a commentary that says your civilian political leadership has completely given up even trying to protect you, I don't know what is. Yeah, it reminds me when I was nine years old during the Cuban Missile Crisis in a rural school, every morning drilled how to get under our desk because of the fear of a first strike on the Soviet Union. And this is supposed to be, we're all told that the atomic war was any day now. So it shows you that we're at that same level of apprehension. Only the difference is that this is self-induced. It's now a foreign threat. So it's, it's pretty scary. When society can't handle these existential questions or the, the felonies that occur, they always distract themselves with going after the misdemeanors. So you, you'll see that during this whole crisis, nobody wants to talk about these existential crises in the inner city and what causes them and how you deal with them. Instead, here in California, the legislature is talking about raising taxes to 16 percent, state ta- income tax from 13, which is too way too high, or reparations, or all of these extraneous issues because they don't know what to do with quarter million homeless that are defecating and injecting on their main streets. And this is sort of what is the heart of progressivism, that they want to go after the middle class law abiding citizen because they don't know how to deal with the ramifications of their own theories on, in the real world. And so when we see the inner city, they'll, they'll think up of everything. You know, we're going to teach kids that wear particular backpacks and we're going to do this, but we're not going to go out after and address why they have to wear backpacks and who's shooting them and why are they shooting them and how are they shooting them? Because it just it just befuddles or rejects the whole worldview. Right. Well, and, and yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, where they can't handle felonies. They go after misdemeanors. And the other thing they do is uh, find uh, scapegoats that they can utilize. And, of course, at the top of that list is President Trump for all of these big city mayors and not even such big city mayors uh, anymore with respect to the violence or uh, or or a range of other matters. And so um, the uh, full court press, all thing, all roads lead to Trump. And, of course, Xanadu will present itself as soon as Trump is defeated on November 3rd. They tell us where do you have the race right now in terms of President Trump's positioning on those big issues that are informing people's votes at present, uh, not just, of course, economic vitality, but but COVID and, and violence. I think it's dead even because I think the Biden campaign's attitude was they made the decision under the cloak of the COVID quarantine that Joe Biden would stay in his basement and allow the news cycle to hurt Trump, who would be blamed as commander in chief for COVID, the quarantine, the self-induced recession, the rioting, the arson. And then they felt that whatever downside of Biden being mute or not seen would, would be 
more than outweighed by letting the news cycle and the media devour Trump and then the danger that Biden on any day at any time anywhere could lose the election because he seems to be befuddled. That worked pretty well. I think he, Trump was in real in real polling about five points behind, maybe long, more. But now I don't particularly trust any particular polls, absolute, but I do look at their relative uh, fluidity. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at the Rasmussen this morning. I mean, it's not 51-49. He's 50, I think it's 53-46. He's ahead by seven. And when you look at the New York Times in states that Trump was way behind, according to them. They've got Biden only by one point in North Carolina, and they've got uh, Trump down by two points in Maine. This is the New York Times. And when you look at the Trafalgar and the other polls, they're dead even. So what I'm getting at is that that news cycle has changed, and people think for whatever reason the virus is waning, there are fewer deaths, and the death this month versus a year ago this month are about the same. And so the virus in their perception is not going to kill everybody, as we were warned. There's not going to be a third spike. There may be, but that's the perception there isn't. The economy is not going into depression from recession, but it's starting to go into recovery. And people feel that. And then I think they, they feel that the quarantine lost all credibility during the these 90 days of uh, protests that were on, you know, they were not, they not stopped. So people feel it's porous now and, and they want to get the 50 million kids back to school. That's, we know that in polls. And I don't, I think when they look at Kenosha or Rochester, they don't see signs of George Floyd anymore. It's something different now. It's one of these things too, where, you know, the, the Jacobin left may be able to stay angry and hateful 24 seven for a long period of time. But most people aren't like that. Most people want to see, you know, where the light is and to be optimistic about tomorrow and and not, not in a silly way, but look for signs. We'll say, well, this isn't as bad, or now I have a better understanding, or now I think I can better cope with this challenge or that challenge. So it just seems like the left is so overplaying their hand with their hatefulness towards Trump as well as America generally. No, they they, they have. And you can see that in the polls of Black Lives Matter used to have about 55% favorability rate, and it's not anymore. And so what I'm getting at is this whole dynamic has changed, and it's changed in favor of Trump, especially when you look at, you know, he's not inert. So you look at these Middle East developments he's done, or you look at what his, his initiatives on trade, or China is now ostracized. It's considered an international outlaw. Everybody believes now about China, what Trump said in 2016. Mm. Nobody in the Democratic Party says, get that embassy back to Tel Aviv. Give that Golan Heights back to Syria. Uh, let's break. Don't don't allow the Arabs to make peace. So even his opponents sort of agree with what he's doing. So what, what I'm getting at is that this has all changed the dynamic. And now Biden is going to have to do because the polls are getting even what his handlers quite brilliantly had avoided with this rope dope strategy. He's going to have to come out. And when he came out this week, gosh, we saw either one of two things, these teleprompter props that they tried to hide and the scripted questions they tried to hide. And they couldn't even, even their, their PR guy couldn't even on national television explain whether or not he was on a telephone because he knew he was. Mm-hmm. And so Biden seems to be not doing well when he gets out in public. And I don't know what will happen in the debates because everybody's capable of having a good day. He did okay against Bernie Sanders when he debated, but I think that the likelihood is he's going to have one of those Biden moments where he's going to say something very strange. And he can that's going to confirm a, a growing consensus on both parties that he's not quite up to the job. So Trump has forced him out of his pretty successful strategy over the last four months.
And now the, the race is really fluid, but more importantly, the trajectory is on Trump's part. And you can see that from these, inner, these inside internal polls. I mean, you don't hire an internal pollster to lie to you, just like you don't go to an oncologist to pay him money to tell you right. when you do have cancer, you don't. Right. And they are telling them, you better be careful because all of a sudden Nancy Pelosi wants to cancel the debates. Hillary Clinton doesn't want Biden to concede if he loses. Michelle Obama is barnstorming, telling everybody you've got to vote, vote, vote. Don Lemon is saying we've got to change our attitude on the, on the rioting. All of that's a reflection of what they've been told in internal Democratic memos, that Trump is gaining, and more importantly, he's gaining in a fashion that they don't know how to stop. He is Victor Davis Hanson, a great American historian, Martin Illy Anderson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author of The Case for Trump. BDH, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be trouble. Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So uh, climate change or land management, which is the uh, proximate cause of the California wildfires. For a discussion on that topic, we're pleased to be joined by Bjorn Lumberg, who's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, think tank, author of the recently released False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. So uh, what's the problem in California, as uh, you understand it, with these uh, wildfires that are raging and the entire Pacific Northwest, for that matter? The uh, Joe Biden and the left say it's primarily a climate change issue. Yes. Yeah, so everybody is telling us this is because of climate. And look, climate is a real problem and it's something we should fix smartly. But it's phenomenally exaggerated when people are telling us that this is predominantly because of global warming. So if you look back in time, California used to burn much, much more. Over the last decade, uh, about 1% of California burned every year. But back uh, before Europeans, it used to be somewhere between 4 and 12% of the whole of California that burnt every year. It used to be totally smoky all summer, all fall. And yet this had obviously nothing to do with climate change. What has happened over the last 100 years is California has basically suppressed fire. You've had very, very little fire. But what happens is you see enormous amounts of wood building up. And that is what is causing these big fires now. You basically have a lot of fire debt, fire that hasn't happened yet, but waits to happen and is now happening. And so that would then logically follow that there should be more controlled burns than there have been. And the problem with uh, doing more controlled burns is that those same climate change alarmists don't want controlled burns because that's uh, against their religion. It's certainly a question of saying what will actually work. So look, 
it's reasonable to assume that climate change both dries out the wood more and that it also prolongs the fire season. But the vast majority of the reason we have more fires is because there's all this extra firewood that has been suppressed from burning for more than 100 years. So what you're essentially seeing is five times more dry wood in the forest cover now than it used to be. So clearly you're going to get more burning. You can do something about that by making sure that you actually do prescribed burns, as you rightly point out. If you do climate policy, you will have virtually no impact, even in 100 years. Remember, if not just California, but all of the U.S. stopped using any CO2, stopped using any fossil fuels, stopped all their emissions tomorrow, and for the rest of the century, the U.N. climate panel models show us this would reduce temperatures by 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. So you achieve nothing. And uh, our friend over at uh, JunkScience.com, Steve Malloy, makes the point, too, uh, not just uh, you're describing eliminate all fossil fuels, this is how little you move the needle. $5 billion of of cap and trade, cap and tax policy later, and now Cal California has accomplished nothing. It's been $5 billion totally wasted in terms of carbon emissions as they have moved away from coal and want to move away from electricity. Certainly, if we look both globally and if we look, for instance, at Germany and other countries, you can spend an enormous amount of resources and achieve almost nothing. Remember, for the last 10 years, the world has probably spent about $2 trillion on climate policies. Yet the UN Environment Program, they told us in a report last year that they cannot tell the difference between the world that we're living in and a world where we had had done nothing towards climate since 2005. So basically, we've spent $2 trillion and you can't tell the difference. That's important to recognize that if you go down the road and say, this is climate change, we're going to do something about climate change. We're going to mandate all kinds of things. You can easily waste lots of resources, but unfortunately, you will have very little or no impact. As we see in California, too, when you set arbitrary levels of how you're going to, uh, of the sources for your energy, like uh, eliminating coal as a source and trying to move to solar and wind, uh, a situation like this occurs uh, with the grid, and now Eric Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., is talking about rolling blackouts, which is nothing new in California. No, I mean, obviously, if you don't have reliable backup power, baseload power that you can rely on all the time, you are likely to see blackouts. And what we're seeing right now is that you're shutting down for nuclear power plants, which no matter what you think about nuclear power, you can have a conversation about whether you should put up new nuclear power, but you've already built it. You've already paid for it. You still have to decommission it. Why wouldn't you let it run? And they run very cheaply while they're built. Why wouldn't you let it run, have CO2-free power, and have lots of baseload power instead of having to rely mostly on unreliable solar and wind. When we come back with Bjorn Lomberg, I want to talk to you about uh, your colleague, Michael Schellenberger's uh, discussions with uh, experts in land management and forestry on uh, the fires and climate change. More with Bjorn Lomberg when we return. The more you'll know, this is this is the Dan Proft Show.
We're back with Bjorn Lumberg talking uh, all things uh, climate change and land management as it pertains to the wildfires in California and the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I've read uh, your musings on the topic as well as some of those of your your colleague over at Forbes magazine, Michael Schellenberger. He's talked to forest professionals in California, land management experts, and they all say the same thing that you're saying, that Schellenberger saying, uh, uh, individuals who've studied uh, the environment and climate change for some decades now. And yet um, there's no interest in that discussion among policymakers in California as was so indicated when Trump went out to visit with Gavin Newsom and his cabinet members. So why is that? Well, I think there's a lot of this that comes down to, are you virtue signaling or are you actually trying to solve the problem? If you want to solve the problem that there are fires that endanger people's lives and certainly make life very uncomfortable, then you would look at what works. What are the policies that we could do that would actually help? And very clearly, all the experts, as you mentioned, will tell you, Prescribed burns is one of the best ways to make sure you get less fire. You fundamentally can't have a place that used to burn a lot every year, suppress fire for more than a century and expect everything is going to be fine. That's the simple answer. But of course, if what you want is rather to virtue signal, feel good about yourself, then it is very obvious to use this as many other things as an indicator for global warming. And again, remember, global warming is a real problem. But by making it the only issue that you focus on, by making it the magic knob that you always can turn and then make all problems go away, not only are you exaggerating the science dramatically, but you're also actually leading most people and policy down the wrong path. You're telling people we should invest in more solar panels when that will have negligible or zero impact on actual fire for the next century. Or you could focus on these things that are much less sexy and much less demonstrative, but just would happen to work, namely prescribed fires. Something else that's less sexy but happens to be important is uh, the impact of energy policy on real people's lives in terms of their purchasing power in this country, in terms of their ability <laughs> to have power in other countries. You've written extensively about this, and, and it's an area... I really appreciate because you connect these policy choices to actual human beings in a way that sometimes we don't do a good job of. We talk in abstractions, the real world costs to actual human beings that uh, don't have the means to have the choices of rich people, uh, both in this country and around the world. So so we often forget that when you talk about doing climate policy, a lot of rich people in in well-established elites will be thinking, oh, you know, you can hike the, the, the gasoline price a dollar or $20 or something. And, and that's easy if you live in Manhattan where you probably don't even own a car. But obviously for many poor people where the car is the way they actually can make their money and with, uh, the way they can get to, to work, it is absolutely unconscionable to imagine that poor people who will be spending a much larger fraction of their resources on energy can absorb those kinds of costs. And that's, of course, why uh, back in France a couple of years ago, uh, the French president put on uh, what was equivalent to a 13 cent uh, uh, hike on the uh, uh, price of uh, gasoline per gallon. And that was what cost the massive protest that we know as the yellow vest protests. Basically, a lot of regular people who are saying, enough, I can't afford this. So it's easy when you're rich to say we should hike the price. But for most poor people, it actually have real world impacts and much more so 
if you look at the fact that, you know, for instance, many people, so 29 million people are energy poor in the U.S., meaning that they cannot afford enough energy. That means that they have to make choices. They have to heat up their homes less in the winter. And we know that one of the things you die from, one of the most important ways you can die from temperature is cold death. They actually outweigh heat death by a factor of 17 to 1 in the U.S. That matters because if you can't afford to heat your home, you will be more likely to die. We know that at least 11,000 people die from this very, very simple problem to solve. If you make energy prices too expensive, you have more people dying from cold. And I wonder, too, just sort of a, a philosophical question in part, but also a professional one since you're in the space. It seems to me, boy, the politicization of science that began with uh, climate change or maybe not began with climate change, but certainly has been dramatically increased because of um, all the money and attention and uh, that, that, that's been focused on climate change. Boy, now that's transitioned to COVID-19 and science and public health professionals hyper politicized. And it's really doing damage to the reputation of individuals in that space, like I believe it has done to so many climatologists and experts in this space of, uh, of, of climate policy and, and atmospheric science. I think the and 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 again, I, I think this is a very sensitive area. I would probably put it slightly differently. When when we have this idea that because of our, our ideology or our politics, we know the answer, we are likely to be making much worse policy, and that's true both for COVID and for climate change. You should be listening openly to you know what actually works in the best possible way. How do you fix people dying from cold and heat deaths? How do you fix people from not dying and, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, property not being burned up in California? These are simple empirical questions that we have good answers for. And we need to pick the policies that work the best, no matter what our political preference or our ideology dictate, if we actually want to make the most good for people. And I think on the, on the same conversation, you need to discuss, for instance, should you lock down societies? What kind of impact should you have? I think there's evidence that for rich countries, uh, uh, you know, moderate lockdowns make good sense. We know that for poor countries like India, but certainly for uh, many countries in Africa, it makes absolutely no sense because the cost is just vastly bigger than the benefit. And so again, we need to have that conversation without being uh, you know, uh, uh, absorbed by this ideology conversation. You're right. You did say it better than I did. Uh, Bjorn Lumberg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, <laughs> author of the recently released False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn Lumberg, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to talk to you. the show we close out the week on a uh, well, a little bit of a pep talk perhaps uh, earlier this week talked about uh, the culture of cowardice 
that has enveloped America in so many quarters. Just the, the amazing lack of courage when it comes to speaking truth about uh, our individual rights amid uh, nonsensical, ascientific, evidence-free COVID-19 lockdown policies, as well as it, as it pertains to identity politics generally, particularly the racial variety. Well, Jim Caviezel, who is out promoting his new movie, Infidel, about uh, Christian persecution in the Middle East, talk about an underreported story, went on with uh, Fox News Channel with uh, Shannon Bream, and he had something to say about the cowards and the collaborators of our time. Boy, did he. Uh, Take a listen. We have this thing called cancel culture, and if Christians don't watch it, it will be canceling Christianity as well, because a lot of our pastors... They, they let their churches being burned. All right. How do we know that? Well, it's right there in the news. Statues being ripped down. They don't say anything. And I watched a movie that Mel Gibson did, Braveheart. When you have the English, who's the bad guys against the Scots. But the real bad guys were the guys that were collaborating. All right. That's why we're in this situation right now. We can't go to churches. We can't go into our church. Well, why? Because they could get contaminated, right? So then why are we on airplanes? I have friends that have committed suicide. I have seven, I have seven uh, SEAL buddies that have lost seven of their friends of committing suicide. And would it have helped to be able to get into a church, especially during this time? Absolutely. And is it good for mental illness? Yes, it is. And so um, uh, the collaborators in our faith, all right, this is where the persecution starts. You've got to have guys inside your faith that won't stand up to the governors, that will not stand up to the mayors. And that's why the Gospels are very much alive right now. Okay, so there are many of us. I got to play Jesus. Some of us love Peter or Paul. But there are many of us right now that are, are, are flat-out Judases, okay? Or they're Pontius Pilots. Or they're, they're the Pharisees, okay? And it's a bloody shame if you can't tell the difference between a, a priest, a, a bishop, or a politician. It's really sad. But this is called lukewarmness. And Christ has a very special place for them. And they know it. You can't tell the difference between a priest, a politician, and a bishop. It's a sad place. Indeed, it is. By the way, it could be so Passion of the Christ. He mentioned Mel Gibson. He mentioned playing Jesus, Passion of the Christ. And also, check out Person of Interest. Pretty good TV show he was in. But there's a church on the North Shore, uh, not far from where I live, Presbyterian Church. Black Lives Matter to God and to us. This is what uh, Caviezel is talking about in part. You can't tell the, uh, the difference between a political institution and a faith-based one. My understanding of Christianity, all men are created in the image of one God. All men have the same nature, enjoy a common humanity. We're equal in the eyes of God, and therefore to be afforded an equal dignity that anything less is an affront to God. So segmentation by race is not compatible with Christianity. We had this discussion with Michael Warren Davis from Crisis Magazine on yesterday's show. Uh, And uh, Jim Caviezel's uh, clarion call to the clergy and other people of faith to live who they say they are in this moment— Uh, Couldn't be more timely. And talk about testimony from Hollywood. You're not going to hear that very often. Thank you for joining us all week on the the Dan Prop Show. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. This is the Dan Prop Show.